welcome to Shattered Lines, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Arbor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, Welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. So, uh, yes, indeed, it is our goal to make a difference each and every Saturday, bringing you a variety of topics. And and this week is no different, although it is different in some ways, because we do we are very fortunate to have to have um, Dr. David Fowler a forensic pathologist on our show today who is from Baltimore. Um, and uh, he's going to tell us uh, about, his, about his job and the facility he manages with a, with a, a perspective of how it relates to crime victims. But before I do, wanted to uh, welcome in uh, Delilah and say good morning and thank you so much for for helping me do this important show on a holiday weekend. Well, once again, it's great to be here. Holidays or not, and we the show must go on, and that's what we do. Um, yes, this. Hello. Mean, once again, you've gotten a great guest. Dr. Fowler is is full of wonderful information for your listeners, and I think he will um, he will just be great. I think this is just going to be a, a wonderful show. Um, and, and I so agree with you. So I want to I want to welcome uh, Dr. David Fowler. He's from uh, well, originally from Zimbabwe, South Africa, but he is uh, working in the in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, and got training at the University of Cape Town um, uh, in, in uh, South Africa, and has been working for many years. Uh, and my understanding is he's been he's been uh, in Baltimore since I believe uh, 2010. So welcome, Dr. Fowler. Welcome to Shattered Lives Radio. Good morning, Donna, and thank you very much for that welcome. Oh, uh, our pleasure, and uh, thank you for taking time on uh, again on a very busy weekend. Um, as as you may be aware, we are a group of people comprised of. Um, Families who have had uh, crime visit visit us in many different ways. We have um, PIs, we have uh, uh, social work people, people that manage nonprofits, and so I think it's a very diverse uh, group that is going to be listening today. Um, can you give us um, a little bit of a background in terms of how you arrived um, from to Baltimore and? What my understanding is you you manage a state of the art facility in Baltimore. So, what what is it like from that perspective? Um, well, yes, it is a state of the art facility. Um, it was purpose designed to specifically do death investigations, all the way from the homicides to natural deaths that occur um, when there's no physician taking care of the patient who dies suddenly because of natural causes. And, and so we see um, a huge uh, number of deaths. Most medical examiner systems will see about 25% of all deaths in their jurisdiction called into their office and referred to their office for at least a preliminary type of discussion. Uh-huh. What happens to the other 75%? <laughs> Well, the other 75%. No, the other 75% are people who have died under the care of of a physician, usually in a hospital, because of known natural causes. So, the best way to remember what might be a medical examiner or coroner case is going to be the person has to have a physician caring for them and has to have died of natural causes only. If there's anything non-natural, whether it's drugs, um, an accident, an injury of any sort, etc., it must be reported to the medical examiner's office. So you need those two things, a doctor looking after you and 
the doctor knowing what you died of and certifying it's exclusively due to natural causes, then those cases do not come to the medical examiner's or coroner's attention. Okay. And so for those 25%, you say, um, and are, typically, are there... Um, are, are they are they cases that are varied in terms of cause in all walk of life, or are they just people that maybe do not have a have have a primary care physician or someone tending them, or or does it come down to is there a, a question? Does it come down to is there a question of how they died? Is that the kind of baseline for it? Well, you, there's always a question, and the question is what is the cause of death? Now, so you get, you, you get all groups, all socioeconomic groups. You get people who have primary care physicians. But, you know, if somebody goes and sees their primary care physician for an annual physical and has a clean physical and uh, the primary care physician says, I'll see you next year, and something happens to them during that year and they die, they, reasonably their primary care physician cannot certify them because they're not treating them for any life-threatening disease. That person would become... Um, a medical examiner or coroner case and require investigation at the medical examiner's office. So you can, you can get a broad spectrum of people with primary care physicians and those who don't have primary care physicians, also economic groups. There are no real rules. Um, every case is individual. Well, Dr. Fellow, I think this might be a, a good time for our listeners. Can you explain the difference between a and a medical examiner, and what cases would each person get if, if there is any difference? I'm sorry, you broke up while you were talking there. Um, I don't yeah. know if it was my side or your side. The, oh, I'm sorry. I was, I was wondering if you could explain the difference between a coroner and a medical examiner. Okay, very simply. Um, Coroners are part of our history and still exist today. The term coroner means king's representative, and they were originally individuals who would settle estates, um, and this was derived from the old British coroner system. In Britain, to be a coroner, you have to be a legal expert because there are many legal ramifications for that. So when our founding fathers came across and settled the original 13 colonies, they brought across the British laws with them. And so they had coroners who would be responsible for making a determination of the death of an individual and then settling their estate, taking death taxes, settling their debts, and then giving the remainder back to the family. So they were kind of a one-stop shop for death investigation and, exe uh, and, and executed the executor of the will um, and or the estate. Um, at some stage, the coroner system in the States moved on so they became primarily death investigators. But coroners fundamentally in the United States are elected officials. There are some places in the United States where they're appointed, but the greater majority of them are elected officials and the greater majority of them are not medically trained. Depends again on which state you're in. So certain states do have a statute which says only doctors can run for the position of coroner, but there are other states where if you're eligible to run for any elected position, you can do it. So you'd have people who are lay people, engineers, dentists, funeral directors, um, etc can run for the position of coroner. And the coroners will look after an electoral district. So they're usually restricted to a city or a county defined by the electoral district of that particular area that they live in. So for instance, in South Carolina, I believe the qualification for a coroner is you're 18 years of age and you have a high school diploma and you're resident in your county. You can run for coroner. Is um, that it? Oh, my goodness. That's it. That seems so minimal. So <laughs> it is, rather. Um, and so it, 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 it certainly raises certain questions. Now, most coroners then would employ a forensic pathologist to do the autopsy if the coroner believes an autopsy is necessary. 
Um, whereas the medical examiner is the coroner and the forensic pathologist rolled into one position and most medical examiners, if not all of them in the country, are appointed by an elected official or by a committee. So in Maryland, we have what we call the Postmortem Commission. It's a small committee of five individuals, the chairman of pathology at Johns Hopkins Hospital, the chairman of pathology at the University of Maryland, the secretary of health for the state, the commissioner of health for the city, and the superintendent of the state police. So you have one law enforcement, two pathologists, and two public health officials, which is a very good mix. That law was put into place in 1939, and we cover the entire state of Maryland through that one office. And that commission um, controls our office. It appoints, it hires and fires all the staff, etc. So they are our controlling body. And that insulates us to some extent from political interference. I have never had a call from, a, from the governor's office, from a senior um, uh, public official saying, I want to discuss this case with you. I need you to, um, you know, I've talked to the family and they think it's this. And I've never had any type of political um, inquiry or even, in, you know, let alone interference. And, and that makes it a very, very open and honest system. And one of the reasons that I am so proud of the Maryland death investigation system is that we have the authority and we're left alone to search for the truth and get as close to the truth as we humanly can. So medical examiners are, are, are qualified forensic pathologists. In Maryland, you have to be a board-certified forensic pathologist. Um, it takes 13 years of training after leaving high school. So you have to have the four years of medicine, then an additional four, year, sorry, four years of bachelor's, four years of medicine, four years of pathology training, and then an additional year of training to be a forensic pathologist. So usually 13 years after leaving high school, you will be qualified. Um, so there's a big difference between the skill set of a medical examiner and the skill set of a coroner. Wow. Well, I think you've done an excellent job at outlining that. Is there, a, is there a, a, an effort to, to have the type of board you talk about for Maryland across the country? Because my understanding is, aren't you also the, is the executive director of your, your professional board name and AME? Is that one of its purposes? Well, right now I'm president of name. Um, mm -hmm. No, there is. There, are, you know, every state has its own right to decide on how they're going to do these death investigations. Um, mm -hmm. We've seen a gradual change over the years um, to a medical examiner system. The history of medical examiners really goes back to um, the very early 1900s in New York City, where they um, established um, medical examiners in New York City, Cleveland, Chicago, and the first state to, to really wrap their arms around it was Massachusetts. Um, and they recognized the old coroners had medical and legal responsibilities, but they really were very few people ha had training in both law and medicine. And so mm -hmm. they decided to separate it and hand over the legal aspects to the state's attorneys and the attorney general and leave doctors to do the medical aspects of it, which is the death investigation, and then report those findings to the law enforcement and the state's attorneys. Um, uh, and so the medical examiner system really is, has a history of just over 100 years. But during that time, um, if you look at the, a map of the United States and see where there are medical examiner um, offices, the greater proportion of, well, I would say greater, over 50% of the, of the country is now medical examiner systems. And especially the very dense areas, um, high volume metro areas. So even in California, which is a coroner state, San Francisco and Los Angeles, San Diego, are all medical examiners. They're not coroners. So yeah, when you well, look at the total population of, of California, 
even though it's a traditional coroner state, there are three major metro areas there uh, with a substantial portion of that population converted over to, to medical examiners. So this is true in, in many parts of the country, that there's been a gradual shift. There hasn't been a, Maryland was unusual, Massachusetts was unusual, there was a sudden decision to make the whole state a medical examiner state. Uh, and places like New York City is a medical examiner, so is Rochester, Syracuse, etc. But most of the smaller counties in New York State, even though they were the first place to, or one of the first places to adopt the medical examiner system, mm -hmm. they never completed the whole state. They just let each jurisdiction make a decision on their own. Um, and so you've got the big metro areas again, um, opting to go to a medical examiner um, system and leaving lay coroners um, or coroner type situations out in the in the more rural parts of those states. A big mix, big mix around the country. Yeah. So if you want a a, um, a high quality um, investigation and you're in a less populated area, um, are you able to 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 go to a university medical school and say I want to have my if you were a family member of someone that passed away under mysterious circumstances, are you able to say, I want to have my loved one examined here versus the local coroner that's 18 years old or whatever? No, no. So the no. coroner has the jurisdiction to make a decision as to A, whether an autopsy is going to be done, and once they've made that decision and decided one is necessary, they get to choose where it was done. Oh. So that, that, that becomes a, a big issue. If they choose not to do one and the family wants one, you can't force the coroner to do it. But what you can do then is go and contract with a private person at a local hospital or even a hospital you know, far away, um, have the, the, the body of your relative shipped there, and um, you can find a pathologist who will do a private autopsy, but then you will be paying for it um, you know, out of your own pocket. Is, so that, the, is that a typical? I mean, how often does that happen? Are there pathologists uh, you know, that set up their shop and want to do it that way? Well, you know, occasionally families do want to have um, a private autopsy. Um, occasionally families want a second autopsy because they don't trust the coroner or the medical examiner. And so um, there have been well-publicized um, cases in the... Um, over the last couple of years where families feel they need to have some representation and have a second autopsy. Or sometimes if the families are really um, on the ball, the best way to do it is say, can we have our own pathologist observe the autopsy performed by the coroner um, pathologist or the medical examiner? And in most cases, the medical examiner's offices um, are very happy to have the family send in a qualified pathologist to lean over their shoulder and observe the process, um, share in the observations. I mean, we're, all we're interested in is the truth. We're not trying to hide right. anything. So it's gonna, they're going to see what we see. Right. So it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to kind of walk us through what, in your position, because you, you have many staff that you oversee in this big facility, what would be sort of a day in the life of your typical uh, goings on there be, besides, you know, actually working on working on um, someone who has been deceased. What what is the the whole of the scope of your job, um, Dr. Fowler? Well, recognize that the office is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because you know people are obviously dying at any time of the day. The mm -hmm. office is typically staffed by what we call forensic investigators. These are usually individuals who have a um, paramedical training of some sort. They understand medicine, um, so they have at least a bachelor's, they, perhaps EMTs, some are nurses, some have forensic science or forensic medicine training backgrounds, but they're not doctors. But they are the ones who man our phones. We get 13,000 referrals in the state of Maryland a year. So they're handling all of those calls and then making decisions as to which ones meet a medical examiner's requirement for an investigation. We prefer to get called on more cases than our hours because it's easier to say no than it is to have somebody 
not be seen, and then we have to go back and try and reconstruct things days or weeks later. Out of those 13,000, we take jurisdiction on about 9,000 cases. Um, and based on the evidence at the scene, based on past medical history, we can typically make a decision on about 4,000 um, without doing an autopsy. And this may be an elderly person who dies at home with a long history of strokes, uh, heart disease, other bits and pieces, but their primary care physician, they haven't seen them in a long time, um, they're not being treated by anybody, and so it becomes a medical examiner case, would be a good example of that. And then we've got the almost 5,000 cases that we're dealing with right now that we will autopsy, and those will be transported to the medical examiner's office, um, usually by a local funeral home in the area they died. We give the family the the opportunity to choose the funeral home transport, um, a funeral home that they're comfortable with. So we don't we don't twist any arms there. The body's delivered mm -hmm. to us, um, and then it's examined initially quickly um, as it's logged into our system by that forensic investigator. They document the clothing and um, a few other bits and pieces, and then the the body's put into the refrigerator. Um, at 8 o'clock the next morning, all the bodies are lined up in our autopsy room, and we have the capacity to do 22 autopsies simultaneously. Um, so it's a very nice, beautiful, clean, surgically set up. It's the same as an operating room, our autopsy rooms. In one and we go around. or you have, uh, like, suites or something with 22 bodies that you're We actually have it divided up. Yeah, uh -huh. we do have it divided up, Donna. Um, we have two uh -huh. main rooms with eight in each, and then we have three smaller rooms with two in each, giving us uh -huh. a total of 22. But we will go from case to case, all the pathologists in the building, plus any residents in pathology that we're teaching, um, plus some of our forensic investigators, autopsy technicians, and we go from case to case and the whole case is presented to the whole group. It's rather like the old ward round that the old style doctors would do. So everybody in the building is familiar with every single case that's going to be autopsied that day. Then one pathologist is assigned to each of those cases to perform the examination um, as they see fit and as the team has actually advised. Then we get together again, usually at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and have all of the cases represented again to the entire team for quality assurance. So that one doctor has to account for all of the procedures and things they did, um, all their findings, um, and answer all of the questions from all of the other pathologists. And we do that both for teaching of our residents, but we learn an awful lot from each other. Um, and it, we make sure that we haven't missed anything that should be done while that body is still in our care. And that length of time that a body is normally in the medical examiner's care in Maryland is less than 24 hours. So the body is ready to be returned to the family in 24 hours. The, the, the pathologist would have retained certain specimens for you know, blood for toxicology, um, other specimens to look at under the microscope, etc. So we can continue then to do the detailed laboratory part of the process, but we've already returned the body to the family so they can start um, making plans for funeral and viewings and whatever type of disposition of the body they think is appropriate. So we like, to, we like to get out of the way and not cause the family any hardship by delaying their needs. Um, other officers, unfortunately, you may have to wait weeks um, before an autopsy is performed. Everybody has a slightly different protocol, but we, that, you know, our philosophy is as I've described it. Wow, that's a very so that's quick a typical turnaround day. time. Yeah, um, what about the case where, you know, and maybe, again, this is television or inaccurate with regard to, well, no, we can't release the body because uh, this is this is a crime, and you know we're still investigating, and you can't bury your loved one yet. What would be the real circumstances for that kind of a scenario, and does that happen a lot? It never happens. Not in never Baltimore. Never happens. No. No. The only time that we will hold on to a body is that the the body is unidentified, and if the body is unidentified, we don't know next of kin to to notify. 
So mm-hmm. therefore, you know, until a missing persons is filed and or we can we can get a definitive ID, but our our we track how quickly we we return bodies to the families, and it's actually 99.99% of all of our cases are available to the body to to the family within uh-huh. 24 hours. Now, now, sometimes if it occurs on a on a weekend and the family or the funeral home decide to only wait until Monday to pick up um, the body, sure. that's fine. But we've done what we need to do so that it could have been picked up on on Saturday, right. if, they, if need be. Well, so the cases, the so cases that are being done at the, you know, the cases that are being examined this morning, at the office in Baltimore will be ready for pickup um, between two and five o'clock today. Wow, that that's amazing, and I'm so glad to hear that that there is a real push to, you know, uh, accommodate the, the wishes of the family. What kinds of, um, with the state of our our facility, what kinds of are there special technologies or with with regard to when you first arrive and what you're using, what kinds of, of, of tools and techniques really help to advance this process? Because my understanding is this, this facility you're working in is far and above some other facilities, correct? It is. And, and let me tell you that the age-old autopsy, the gold standard for doing, uh, determining why somebody died, really hasn't changed. Um, okay. That part of the process is still exactly the way it is, but what we're doing now is we're doing it in the equivalent of a hospital-grade building in a room which has the same lighting and facilities as a surgical suite or operating room. Um, There are computer terminals at every single autopsy table so the doctors can look at all of the background information, all the scene death photographs, review the photographs as our photographers are taking them during the autopsy, see all the x-rays. We did upgrade our x-ray equipment dramatically when we moved out of the old building into the new one. We have both a CT scan and then a whole body x-ray. Um, which has become extremely popular in the United States. It's a top-to-toe single X-ray of the body. It takes about 17 seconds to do, which is probably about 10 times faster than taking a head, a neck, a chest, an abdomen, and then each of the extremities in the old format. Um, mm-hmm. And then kind of having multiple photographs or, or x-rays up on a x-ray box. Now you've got the whole body on you, in front of you on a screen. You can scroll up and down and see the whole body. You can zoom in and out. Um, terribly efficient. So what we've done is we've provided the medical examiners with certain um, efficiencies um, and made sure that all the forms they need are pre-labeled, pre-printed. Um, all of the specimen containers that they need are pre, pre-labeled, etc. Or at least the labels to stick on them are, are all made. So it becomes a very rapid process um, other than the actual autopsy where you still cannot take shortcuts. You have to take the heart out. You have to um, carefully dissect out the coronary arteries and look at the narrowing of the coronary arteries. And you need to, all of the procedures that we would do in the examination of each of the essential organs hasn't changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. But we can do it in a very, very respectful and dignified environment with the best equipment backing it up. Um, and all of these efficiencies, which means the medical examiners aren't distracted by anything else. They can really focus on just getting that um, essential information um, gathered from the autopsy. Speaking about your facility, I know it's state-of-the-art. You know, how do examiners protect themselves from anything a body might bring into the facility, you know, when doing um, autopsies or death investigations? Um, such as the anthrax case that you worked on. <laughs> so yeah, the anthrax case was an interesting experience because we did it in the old facility in a building that was not designed to do it. So we there are various standards for biologic um, safety. And most autopsy rooms in the country are what we would call biologic level two, 
which is reasonably adequate for most disease processes. And the diseases that um, or, or what we would call biologic level two are ones which are easily treatable by antibiotics and other processes. When you get to um, BSL-3 organisms, these are ones which are highly dangerous, have the potential to, to kill, and they may or may not be uh, appropriate therapies. So TB, uh, meningitis, etc., anthrax would certainly be in that group. The old facility did not have a BSL-3 facility. So we had to take great care to, 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 to protect the staff. Now in the new building, part of the sort of state-of-the-art process was to design air handling um, in such a way that the pathologist never breathes in any air or aerosols that have come off the body. And it's what we would call a laminar flow um, type process where the air comes in high up behind and above you, comes down past the back of your head, past your nose and mouth, to the body, and then is sucked out at grills in front of you and below you. Now, this is exactly the same procedure that the orthopedic surgeons use in the very, very sterile orthopedic hip and knee replacement operating rooms to make sure they don't contaminate those um, processes when they're putting them inside a human body. So again, when I said we're, we're working in the best quality, almost surgical um, operating room standards, that's what we have. So that airflow protects the pathologists, um, but they also wear masks and they also use what we would call universal precautions. So the full gowning, the gloves, the masks, etc., is belt and suspenders to make sure that the staff are kept safe. Wow. And how many staff do you um, do you uh, oversee currently or work with you? So currently we have 80 full-time staff and about 100 to 120 part-time staff. The part-time staff are the forensic investigators who look after our counties for us. They're usually working in some other position like an EMT, firefighter, nurse, and when they're off duty, mm -hmm. they sign up to do cases for us. But the core of the work um, in the office is there are 80 um, people, of which 16 are forensic pathologists, probably mm -hmm. somewhere in the region of 12 to 13 are autopsy technicians, two photographers, uh, about eight or nine toxicologists, histotechnologists, there are two of them, secretaries, records people, receptionists. Um, the investigation staff are about 14 of them full-time so you know that gets us up you know we've got a couple of maintenance people and a few okay. other businesses that gets us to sure. the, the total of 80. Wow um, is there you know part of our show is to to try to always um, give the perspective of the crime victim family um, and I was wondering I was reading some articles about you and how you very much uh, conduct yourself as a family and are very respectful of crime victims and their families, and how I'm just wondering, um, in your dealings with families directly, is there a particular protocol that you follow? And what's your philosophy with regard to um, working working with the families and when you come in contact with them? So, obviously, our forensic investigators come into contact with the families all the time. We have pretty much an open, I won't say door policy, because we, we, we deal with most of the families over the phone, gathering medical information, et cetera, et cetera. Um, our policy is to help the families understand the cause of death. So at any time, if the family wants to speak to the medical examiner that is in charge of that investigation, they can do so. Just pick up the phone, and we'll get back to you as quickly as possible. Um, our other policy, obviously, is to turn the, return the body to the family within 24 hours, which means the family do not need to come to the medical examiner's office. The identification has already been done by, by police, um, and so it's very rare that we have identification issues. It's not like you see on TV where... Um, the family have to go down to a mortuary somewhere and you know, view the body. Um, that is just, well, that is incredible. My mother rare. had to do that for my father, so I'm just wondering how often is that really true that you do have to go down and 
and identify is it if I don't know. There's got to be someone that knows them that you don't have to put the immediate family through that. Is that true? It's absolutely true. And look, most of us are carrying forms of identification in our pockets at all times. Um, and so, therefore, it's very easy to, to take out that identification, driver's license or whatever it may be, and to compare it to the person lying in front of you. And then there are various databases. Um, if we need to, and we need to verify it, most of us have been fingerprinted for job applications, security applications. Um, when I immigrated, I was, when I was interviewed and when I got my citizenship, so my fingerprints are all over um, the databases out there. And this is true for 80-some percent of the population. Um, and it's not because that people have had criminal activity and being fingerprinted for that. But if you apply for a job, you often have to go and get your fingerprints done so they can do a security clearance on you. Um, if you want to own a firearm, some states require you to submit fingerprints for firearm ownership. There, there are just multiple reasons that people have been fingerprinted. So we have a fingerprint station in the office, and if there's any doubt, we can run, and we'll get about 82% hit on that, which then clears up a good proportion of the others. Um, and so really, um, if, if we get to the point where we need to make an ID, doing a visual ID is what we would call non-scientific, it's very hard on the family. It's also very inaccurate because the families are so emotionally wrought. Sometimes they deny that that's their next of kin because they're in denial. And it's just too shocking. And other people don't look closely because they just want to get out of there. We recognize that that is a very, very error-prone method of doing an identification. And so we prefer to, to do scientific. So if, if we get to the point, we can always ask the family, What's the name of, of, of the dentist who took care of, of the deceased individual? We'll get the dental records and we'll do a dental comparison. So there are multiple ways. That gets us pretty much to a 98, 99% um, scientific, um, independent um, identification without having to use the family. And if we really need to, we can then go on to DNA. But that does take couple of weeks or months to do. So we try and not do that because it is a long process. Yeah. Well, that sounds much better and you don't have to put the family through all of that. It's just, I don't know, I, I guess it's just for effect what you see on TV because people have the idea that you always have to do it that way, which is, is, is very good. What are, what are the most... Um, common myths or misnomers in this whole process? I mean, we've touched on a couple of them, but what would you like our, our audience to know in terms of having a better, where we're getting a, a better understanding of the whole picture just by having you on the show, but what is it that you would want to tell um, crime victim families that they don't really understand? Well, the, the first thing, it's, it's absolutely not like CSI. I mean, okay. we cannot solve the, the – give you the answer in 45 minutes um, with, with time for commercials. It, it just doesn't work. Um, right. Our guys uh, – our docs don't arrest people. They don't go around carrying guns. Um, we have a team of very specialized individuals, and each person has their own speciality. It, they're not sort of generalists like you see on, on, on TV. So there's, there's that aspect to it. But probably the, the biggest – um, issue is something that we see in the press or hear in the press. The body has been sent to the medical examiner's office for an exact determination of the cause of death. And people need to realize that an autopsy is a process where we look at each of the essential organs and the body and we identify abnormalities, physical abnormalities. And when you go to your doctor, your doctor can do blood tests. He can do an EKG. He can do all sorts of things. He can feel your pulse. He can listen to your respirations. Obviously, we cannot do that on a deceased individual. You can't listen to somebody's heart rate. You can't do an EKG. The moment somebody dies, the, many of the blood tests change dramatically within seconds, and so therefore you can't interpret them. So we cannot interpret physiology like our colleagues do within normal medical practice. We can only see and interpret 
physical abnormalities such as injuries, clogged up coronary arteries, etc. Then what we do is we review those in the light of the scene. So if somebody's walking down the street and has a sudden witnessed collapse, well, gee, you know, that's the sort of thing which is often cardiac or intracranial, um, you know, central nervous system. So when if we then open up and we examine the heart and we find clogged coronary arteries, we can put two and two together and, and come to a reasonable conclusion that this was a sudden cardiac event because we've got witnessed evidence of it and now we've got autopsy evidence. But we couldn't on that particular individual do an EKG to confirm it was a cardiac death. So many of the, the way we work um, is very much the medical model. And I think that, that goes to the, the final point, um, which is different. Most people think the medical examiners are part of the police department. In some places they are. But we are 24-hour emergency medical institutions, and we have the responsibility of one thing, and that's making that final diagnosis as to what caused the death. And we use the standard medical model. So when you go to see your doctor and you walk into his office, he'll say to you, Donna, why are you here today? And you say, you know, I've got this sore throat. So you've just given him a history. You've given mm -hmm. him or her a history as to why you need their care. Well, we, we get that same information from the scene. What are the circumstances of the death? That is why that person has come to us. Then we do, your doctor would do certain tests. They'll look in your throat. They'll listen to your chest. They might take a chest x-ray. They might do a little swab and do a, a strep analysis quickly. Um, so we do tests. We do x-rays. We'll send blood up for toxicology. Um, we will do an autopsy. It's a test. It's an examination. And then at the end of this whole process, your doctor says, Donna, you've got strep throat. I'm going to give you an antibiotic. At the end of the process, we say this person died of X, and we're going to fill out a death certificate and an autopsy report, and then have those available to the state's attorney if they believe them necessary. So all of my staff and everything that we do follows the standard medical model, not law enforcement. We are not law enforcement. And when we do gather evidence as part of our process, we hand it straight over to the police who are at the autopsy to take away and process. We don't analyze fibers on the body um, and any of the um, trace evidence that's on the body, etc. That's done by the forensic science um, people in the crime people laboratories. The mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a completely different process. It's not what we do. We do just the medical aspects of the process. And mm -hmm. I, I, I want to make that absolutely clear. So think of us as a hospital. Yeah, well, that is very clear. Um, with regard to um, how often do you actually have to go to court to testify your your results? Is that, um, you know, maybe a quarter of the cases that you see or, or uh, in terms of testifying? Yeah. You're probably about correct, about about 25%. It depends on how what we would call the closure rate. The police close the cases and figure out who did it and how mm -hmm. often people get charged. Now, in some cases, when people are charged, they might actually plea um, or take a plea. Um, so looking at Maryland having about 500 homicides a year and there are about 12, 13 forensic pathologists doing it, they're each responsible for about eight, 70 to 80 homicides a year. Um, and the closure rate in Maryland at the moment is in the 30s, um, or maybe a bit more than that. So um, each of the medical examiners will go to court about 25 times a year, which is about once every two weeks. Okay. Once every two weeks. So it doesn't pull you away from your other duties too much? <laughs> Well, it does. It takes a full day to do that. Uh, you've got to prepare for court. You've mm -hmm. got to drive to court. Bear in mind, we cover the whole state, so sometimes you've got to drive three hours to Western Maryland or the Eastern Shore to to present a evidence in a homicide trial that may be a long way out of Baltimore. Yeah. Well, 
I guess it, it's part of your role, and uh, you just you do it, you fit it into your schedule, like you have. While we're on the topic of what uh, you know, the statistics in Baltimore, and I know off air we touched on this, but for the benefit of those other people I know who are listening in Baltimore, you know, there was big influx of homicides, and maybe the way the media per, per, um, portrayed those. Can you give us a sense of? Um, have things calmed down? Have things have things gotten better with regard to what we saw in the media was a, a virtual explosion of homicides in the last couple of years? Can you give us a, a, an accurate picture of that? Yeah, Donna. Things things are still um, running to this year. We're running at about almost exactly the same number as we were running last year. Um, and, and typically, a, a, the greater majority of the homicides that we see um, are related to the drug trade. Um, and so individuals fighting over territory, individuals, um, specifically rival gangs, etc. And, and a lot of it is circulating around that, that type of distribution of illicit narcotics. Um, so when we went into the recession in 2008, we saw a substantial decrease in the number of homicides in the entire state of Maryland, not just the city. Um, and we saw a decrease in drug deaths. Drugs. People couldn't afford drugs. People were going into drug treatment programs. Drug pre treatment programs were swamped. Um, but and, and since nobody was buying, nobody was standing on the corner selling drugs because it wasn't worthwhile getting shot at or getting into arguments over, you know, a fairly small income. But now there is substantial money to be made um, from selling drugs. So there are a lot of people who are stepping on each other's toes and settling those arguments um, with, with, with firearms. And this really drives up the homicide rate quite dramatically. Um, so our sense is that many of these um, are young individuals who are in gangs and or associated with, the, with, with um, distribution of drugs. So not only do you have the surge in the drug deaths because of cheap heroin which has been tainted with fentanyl and other substances to make it more powerful, um, but you also have all of the um, associated homicides related to that as well. So you know, we've, we've had almost a thousand additional autopsies hit our office over the last two years, wow. which is effectively the workload of four forensic pathologists. The national standards try to limit the work of a forensic pathologist to about 250 cases a year, which gives that pathologist, since we work about 250 days in a year, about eight hours to focus on each. Now, some cases will be a lot simpler and a lot quicker, and there are certain cases which are going to take a lot longer and have court dates and all sorts of other things. It balances out. But that's roughly what you would be looking at. So there's a major shortage of forensic pathologists in the United States right now. We anticipate, well, we, we estimate, not anticipate, we estimate that there are only about 50% of the needed forensic pathologists working. So it means out there that in many jurisdictions, autopsies may not be done, that should be done, um, or alternatively, those autopsies are being done by people who are not forensically trained, just general pathologists, and or thirdly, the forensic pathologist may be pushed to do more than the appropriate workload, which again means they have to, I wouldn't say take shortcuts, but they're being forced into moving through a case as fast as possible because there's another case waiting. And that just is not fair to the system. And, and the you burn out, right? There is, there is a potential that people will burn out, yes. Yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm just amazed at how... I know that um, you have to be very resilient in um, what you're doing, just like myself as a homicide survivor and someone having over 50 surgeries. I know I didn't share that with you, but um, we we have something in our genetics that keeps us going, and maybe that's what you did when you, you chose this career, but how how is it that 
that you are able to personally and your staff able to keep going? Is there a particular philosophy that drives you? Um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about it. I think you know, we self-select, Donna. So at some stage we all decided we wanted to do medicine, and then mm-hmm. we then decided we wanted to do pathology, which is a real small subset of medicine. And then we got interested in forensics, which is an even smaller subset. So there's, there are decision mm-hmm. points along the way where people have walked into, you know, we find this interesting and stimulating and challenging, and that's what we want to do. Um, and you, you have to recognize that the greater majority of the forensic pathologists, as I said, are working in these autopsy rooms, which are very clinical and brightly lit. And so we see some extremely um, distressing things, but we've had 13 years worth of training to, to get ready for it and adapt. Um, and human beings can adapt to the most incredible things as long as you do it slowly enough. So it's learned behavior and some self-selection, I think, protects most of the forensic pathologists. There was a study done recently by a psychiatrist who was interested in knowing how much post-traumatic stress there was amongst forensic pathologists. Mm. And she was very, very interested to find it was almost none. It was was zero, very close to zero. (laughs) But what she did find was that the forensic investigators, who are our frontline troops, who go to the scenes where it's raw emotion, there's the blood, um, the families, people upset, they have a substantial level of um, emotional impact from that. And many of them do exhibit some level of post-traumatic stress. Wow. How so it, it's a very, very, uh, absolutely, very interesting split because as a pathologist, not having to... Um, not having to go to the scene in many cases. You're not, you're not exposed to that flashing lights in a dark street with people shouting and a crowd gathering and um, et cetera, et cetera. You're, you you wow. pitch up to work at 8 o'clock in the morning and it's, you're in a beautiful building, um, superb facilities, great autopsy room, high tech. Um, why would you be stressed? You should be no, yeah, more, no more stressed than a surgeon who's, who, in fact, I think a surgeon has more stress because they have an outcome that is more difficult to, to handle at times. I mean, I, I admire our colleagues in clinical medicine, trauma surgeons, emergency room physicians, um, etc. physicians who have to deal with things which are difficult to, to mitigate, such as malignancies where you know that you you can keep a person alive for longer but at the end of the day you may not be able to save their life uh, you know I, I i think they actually um they carry my admiration well i think you are an incredible person to be admired as well for what you do and and you're you seem very humble and um I, just to let you know we've got about seven minutes or so left to our show um, just for a little bit of a time check. And, you know, there's, it's a wealth of information here. I really do appreciate it. I was just wondering, are you a fan of, of bringing um, teenagers in, uh, juveniles or criminals into your autopsy room to kind of scare them straight, to kind of, you know, tell them what this is like? Is that a do you actually do that there in Baltimore, and is that an effective technique? Well, two questions. We absolutely do not do it, and okay. it absolutely has been proven not to be um, something that works. Um, and we've had a couple of judges provide us with court orders to do that, and we will fight those. And the National Association of Medical Examiners has a position statement on that saying it is absolutely and utterly inappropriate. And I'll tell you why I also believe it inappropriate. Not only does it not work, but the individuals that are there can't give consent to that. The family, you know, shouldn't be contacted in the moment of their bereavement to say, do you mind if we bring this bunch of teenagers around to gawk at your family (laughs) member who died in these circumstances? I mean, it's not respectful. It's not dignified. It's not appropriate. And I can tell you that I will protect the respect and dignity of the individuals in that office. Um, and I will go and explain that to a judge and say, I will not comply with your court order. 
So and most in judges those have been, very when few they've... cases, you have won, and you, you have you have uh, the the judge has changed changed their uh, desire. Oh, absolutely. When you explain it to a judge, they they suddenly realize that, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. I know shock trauma and the emergency rooms and places do that, but at least there, the patients that are exposed to it could give consent if they're in a in a in a you know well enough to be able to give consent and share their story. Um, but we have a responsibility to protect the individuals who've come to the medical examiner's office, and we're given authority to do certain things just to determine the cause of death and nothing more. And so I fundamentally will try and protect the individuals who are coming through. They didn't ask to be there. Um, their family didn't ask them to be there. And, you know, there is anything which is outside of our normal daily and statutory authority needs to have permission from the family. Well, uh, I'm I'm so glad to hear that because, you know, I never thought that that was respectful either, and I'm glad that you do not do that. Um, is there – I know that you've just returned from teaching in China, and we would probably need a whole other hour to talk about that. I'd love to talk to you about that someday. Perhaps you will consider coming back um, on our show. I would love you to if you would consider in the future. But what is there um, for the future that you would like to see – changed for the better that would be a reasonable goal um, impre- improved quality across the United States so that every single jurisdiction does things according to the national practice standards the big problem Donna is that death investigation is a local home state or local county responsibility and some counties see it as critical and are vested in it and do a superb job and that would be the state of Maryland and there are many places around the country where um, people aren't administrators are not prepared to spend the money or don't understand the public health implications of identifying new emerging diseases that threaten their community, identifying a meningococcal meningitis in a university dorm that could kill another couple of um, people in that university. They don't recognize new and emerging drug threats, um, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's not just the... Um, homicides that we, we're focusing on. In Maryland, if I was honest to you, we do 500 homicide autopsies and we do 5,000 total. So it's, it's nine other autopsies for every homicide. And those have substantial public health impacts. Design of motor vehicles, the use of seat belts, where airbags should be placed in a car, crash resistance in a vehicle, all of that came out of information from medical examiner's offices and coroner's offices around the country. And then when airbags were first put into the car, we realized that the um, legs were getting crushed because they didn't have strong firewalls between the engine. That's been fixed now. Then we realized the side impacts needed to be dealt with because that was the next threat. All of the advances that you have that protect you um, in many of those, consumer protection, if we notice a particular item has been associated with a death, we register it with the consumer um, council and it might have been only one in Maryland, but when you look at the entire United States, if you get 20, 30 of those, oops, there's a problem here. So, wow. So there, there are the public health aspects of this and protecting the public's health as well as the public's safety um, is something that it's really needs to be um, you know, focused on as well. That, so that high, quality, high quality across the states would be absolutely paramount. Well, we can do a whole other show just on that sometime. So I hope that you will stay in touch with us. Delilah, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you have the the floor for the end of the show here. Do you have some some parting question or some some thoughts you'd like to relate with Dr. Fowler? Well, I think Dr. Fowler just went over the last thing I had written down was identifying different trends that um, that come out of his office. So I think. You know, like you said, we could probably do a whole show on on just those trends. And I would just like to say thank you so much for yeah. taking the time to to really put a notch up in our education. And I hope listeners come away with the same feeling. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you for the opportunity. 
Thank you so much. Um, we really do appreciate it, and we hope you have a good weekend. Um, and I'll stay in touch, okay? Thanks, Don. Appreciate it. Okay, very good. Thank you. Bye-bye Bye-bye. now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.